the two cars that we had, with my car and my wife's car, we just sold to get liquidity, essentially convert to monthly payments. I'd sold all my Intuit stock. And that's when like ran out of personal funds, started to borrow against credit cards. Every rent payment was essentially doing another credit card. How did you get through that? Even when we were close to getting up, we were, we were still talking about like, we're going to go back to our jobs and like moonlight and keep working on this thing. The medium of the internet is so empowering. How do you get people to access that economic and distribution power of the web? And a website is the entry point. It's the beginning of everything, not just the beginning of that idea, but like the continuation of that idea or that business harnessing the full power of the internet. And we're still in a world where the vast, vast majority of people on the internet are like consuming. I feel like it's a very underrated thing not enough people talk about. You need Supportive people around you, but supportive partners too. I'm so grateful for, for my wife because it was ultimately her push where she was like, look, I know this is going to be hard, but I don't want any of us, like both of us to be, you know, feel like you have like a massive regret of something that you wanted to do with your life, but you didn't. So that was the push that I needed. I don't think anything with Webflow would have happened the way it did if it wasn't for my partner, my kids, my co-founders, takes the village. Welcome to The Peel, where we explore the world's greatest startup stories. I'm your host, Turner Novak, founder of Nana Capital, venture capital firm with the worst website. Today, I'm excited to share my conversation with Vlad Magdalene, the co-founder and CEO of Webflow, software that empowers designers to build websites without code. You'll learn about the history of web browsers, websites, and web design, why Vlad thinks websites are the ultimate economic enablers, and how the movement to CSS, web standards, and responsive design in the early 2000s initially created the opportunity to build Webflow. Vlad has an incredible story of persistence, believing in a mission, and never giving up. He takes us inside moving to the U.S. as a refugee at nine years old with his parents and five siblings, learning to code by building websites for money, how he failed starting Webflow three times, the immense personal financial struggles he went through to keep the company alive in the early years, growing the business to $10 million in revenue before raising a Series A from Excel, the investing on principal contract he signs with all Webflow's investors, and why he credits his wife for Webflow's success. Webflow was last valued at $4 billion, and Vlad's story perfectly encapsulates the American dream. I think you'll really enjoy our conversation, and thanks to Vlad for taking the time to sit down with me. Now, let's jump in after a quick word for Mercury. Mercury is banking for ambitious companies, a modern partner that says goodbye to the friction that comes with traditional banking. Mercury moves at the speed of startups, from a seamless onboarding to wiring money and providing you with connections in the network, everything is just a few clicks away. Regular listeners will remember Mercury co-founder and CEO, Ahmad Akund, came on the show a few months ago, and we'll link to that episode in the show notes if you want to dig deeper into everything they're building. I use Mercury personally, and whether you're a team of two or 2,000, I highly recommend it to every startup looking for something better. Join myself and more than 100,000 other startups and venture capital firms. Head to mercury.com to sign up for the most intuitive way for ambitious companies to bank. A quick disclaimer, Mercury is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services are provided by Choice Financial Group and Evolve Bank and Trust, members FDIC. Thank you, Mercury. And now let's talk to Vlad Magdalene. Vlad, how's it going? Thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Turner. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm hanging in there. It's you know, a lot of stuff going on in the world, but we have our conference coming up next week. Uh, you know, you know, prep, all this stuff also kind of hanging in there. If I'm being honest, well, we have that in common today. It's fun hanging in there. It's, you know, sometimes having the curveballs come, yep. you know, it keeps things interesting. As long as you have a, you know, clear sense of purpose, 
it makes that uh, pretty easy. So on that note, what is the purpose of Webflow? The purpose of Webflow is to empower more people to create things that typically only engineers have been able to create. And more specifically, Webflow is around building like really, really professional websites. Uh, that's what we're really hyper-focusing right now. If you think of the entire like website market, there's like the Squarespace's, Wixes of the world. Those are made directly for small businesses. But when you have like startups, growing businesses, mid-market companies, Fortune 5000 type of companies, they're typically building with code or WordPress or, you know, these uh, coding-based frameworks. Webflow squarely in that professional website creation, website platform management space. Um, if you think of Wix and Squarespace, almost like iMovie, we're like the After Effects or the Final Cut Pro. Uh, we are professionals for marketing teams, for freelancers, agencies, service providers who are building like really next level pro websites that typically are only possible with code. Um, and we created a visual development platform that allows that kind of customization and flexibility. And that's what we're known for, like deep customization, deep design flexibility, lots of scale, like building really uh, mission critical dot coms for tons of startups, tons of larger and larger companies. Yeah, that's what we do. And so... Who is kind of the customer right now? I've heard you describe it as it's typically maybe an agency or maybe that was how you started. So initially it was mostly freelancers and agencies that were building for other businesses, right? And they build a business for themselves. They kind of use Webflow as the platform to build for a ton of other businesses. That was basically 100% of how we started. Then we started to expand more and more into teams directly. Um, so now our, our businesses have in-house teams or marketing teams larger teams that are just running their entire marketing operation, their main website off of Webflow. It's roughly half and half today where it's uh, businesses directly. And then oftentimes they need to be supported by agencies and freelancers. And then we have uh, a massive part of our business still that is like these service providers and agencies and freelancers who are building for others. And then we also have a ton of, it's such a horizontal platform that we have a lot of individuals, freelancers, people making portfolio uh, you know, websites for themselves. Sometimes people create entire applications with Webflow. See a lot of things go go live on Product Hunt that are built with Webflow. If you look under under the hood, sometimes not exclusively with Webflow, people will hook up, you know, like a Zapier, maybe Airtable sometimes. So there's a very wide range of ways that people are using Webflow. But the vast majority of our like key use cases are larger and larger teams creating mission critical websites uh, that are running in production, constantly changing, that typically would be that in code. So I didn't think we go down this road, but you you mentioned full apps built on Webflow. How does that work? That's the long, long-term vision for the company. And that's how, that's how we started. Like if you think of websites, they're kind of a subset of web applications. It's the same core primitives, HTML, CSS, JavaScript, uh, React components, databases, et cetera. With websites, you kind of have the same core primitives, UI, data, logic, et cetera, that over time starts to expand into um, like that, that line between what's a website and what's a web application starts to kind of blur, right? You add a login portal to a website for, let's say, your, um, your venture fund, right? All of a sudden, that starts to become something that's like an application light. So that's where we see, you know, quite a few people like stretching our platform, even though it's primary use case right now that, that we're selling is pro websites. Some people are stretching it to, to the limits to make deeper and deeper web applications. But that, that space is sort of like just emerging. It's a space we see ourselves going into in the future, but it's, it's not something that is like super core right now. Interesting. So why is it not super core or why do you see yourself going there in the future versus right now? People are already using it that way. 
it's a matter of sequencing. Like we really still have, if you look at the the website space, the huge players are folks like WordPress or uh, custom coded frameworks, right? Where teams are like hand rolling uh, a lot of their, you have like marketing teams relying on engineering teams, engineering teams using, you know, internal code and internal frameworks to, uh, to push marketing sites out. There's still so much to disrupt there and to, um, to help really streamline how that works, that our visual development tools are not fully at parity with code level capabilities yet. So we have to like nail that first because that's what our customers are asking for now. That's what they need to power their websites today. So it's a matter of like getting that right first and then expanding uh, our scope. So uh, I think we have to like walk before we run, uh, before we get to like all kinds of creating all kinds of software. In terms of kind of the website space design, like the industry of websites, what does that kind of look like right now? Because I've seen some crazy stats, like a significant chunk of websites are powered by WordSpace or WordPress. Content managed sites are closer to 50%. Uh, we just cracked 1%, but the, you know, you can kind of tell the, the difference in scale there. And, and and WordPress has a ton of great capabilities that, so no wonder that so much of the web is, is based on it. Uh, I mean, we fundamentally believe that there's a, a better way to combine visual development to create like the same kinds of, if not more powerful websites. Uh, but there's a ways to go for us to prove uh, that that's uh, to get to like 50% of content managed sites. Uh, it's like a high bar uh, to try to reach. So uh, always keeps us um, keeps us on our toes and gives us like a goal to reach for. So what does kind of the rest of the space look like? Or, or how do I usually create a website right now? Am I Googling how to start a, or how to build a website and I find a WordPress or what's usually the process? I mean, there's tons. It depends on who you are, right? Like, and we really cater to uh, to teams who are creating hyper customized, very professional, you know, a stripe.com, a ramp.com, a, you know, IDO.com, those kinds of really, really deeply customized websites that, that require typically coding effort. There's a much larger market for like your, you know, everyday person who just needs to build a website for themselves. And, and that, you know, that space is huge, right? Um, but it's it's not where we're like looking to play uh, because that's that that area seems to be more or less solved. Uh, like you can go create a website in like 10 minutes um, on you know, a bunch of different platforms. What we're really going for is like, can you create a super powerful mission critical website that is your main.com that drives your business that is right now for, for most companies, the vast majority of companies is only achievable through direct code. That's what we're looking to solve. And those options are very limited. Like we're kind of the only player in the game where, where we're trying to take all the code out of that process. I mean, we have some low code aspects to like really get that uh, customization and we're building like a fastly growing ecosystem of app developers that are helping create a bunch of, um, you know, capabilities that we don't have in-house that are, you know, software extensions, et cetera. Very similar to WordPress, what they did early on. That's the space that we're really trying to solve. Like the, the area where you would typically have a development team working with a marketing team to sort of like hand designs over, then uh, coders will implement that in whatever framework they're using, push it live to production. That space is like, we're kind of defining it. There are a lot of bigger players. So uh, there's this entire category of tools called DXPs or digital experience management platforms, uh, like Adobe Experience Manager, Sitecore. These are like the massive deployments are usually like million dollar plus deployments that power like every digital experience, surveys, mobile, uh, you know, mobile apps, et cetera. Those typically tend to be like really, really huge enterprise deployments powering things like Qantas.com, 
WebMD, you know, like massive, massive, massive scale that probably involves, you know, hundreds of people to operate that platform. We're not playing there yet. There's like this big area in the middle that is like the, you know, the startup, the um, kind of mid-market company opportunity where, where people want deep customization. They want speed. They want their marketing teams to like operate very, very quickly in like owning their marketing site and being like the main top of funnel source of, for many companies, is like the, the entry point into their business, right? And how their business works. That's where uh, we're really leading right now and continue. Like, that, that's our intention is to continue leading there. Where there, most other options are a bunch of disparate tools with a lot of developer developer glue to bring those things together. And we're trying to bring that all into an integrated visual development platform where you can do that as a brand designer, as a product designer, as somebody who is not super proficient in writing code and removing a lot of like the automation pieces, uh, automating a lot of the things that that are essentially repetitive that happen to be a core source of things slowing down, things not having a lot of consistency or uh, design control today. So. Yeah, it's kind of sometimes hard to describe like how it might be beneficial to everyone because in many in many cases like you might be better off using Squarespace if you're just creating like a very basic uh, present site or a you know about me type of website. But for the the area where we play, which is like these deeply customizable mission critical main.coms that are run by marketing teams and you know startups that want like a really customized experience, that's where we win. It sounds like maybe there's an opportunity, maybe you've hinted this a little bit, marketing teams, a lot more control. So it's the landing page or the first impression that a customer has. Do you start to eventually help with building that customer relationship, like a CRM attached, email marketing powered attached? Like I don't really know exactly how that works, but it yeah. sounds like maybe that's a little part of it? We focus right now on all the content and delivery. So all the content you'll see on the site. And we work with partners through like the app ecosystem I mentioned to integrate with like the myriad of next order uh, sort of integrations. To site. So for example, one of our top integrations is with HubSpot, right? Where you would do like relationship management, uh, sort of sending out emails, etc. Classically, there have been different things that you attach to a website to provide more functionality. The more that relates to actually content people see. So for example, localization is one of our big bets right now uh, to build uh, websites that are, you know, have different sort of presentations in different locales, different languages. Typically that could be done with an external system, translation management system, or some sort of like external JavaScript integration that sort of translates the site as you load it. We're building more and more of those things uh, deeply into our platform, like richly integrated, where you don't have to rely on kind of bringing in a third party. But we're focusing right now on things that are like so directly related to the website itself, like the content that you're showing to users. And we're not trying to uh, reinvent the wheel on things like CRM or, or emails or whatever until we like really nail the core website piece. Why the website? Why is that so important? Oh man, to me, it's like... The, the medium of the internet is so empowering, not just in, in terms of like information you can share or ideas you can get out there, but primarily from the economic enablement that it can bring to, um, you know, getting ideas out there, getting a business out there, et cetera. And, and a website is like the, the spark of all that. It's like the entry point. It's the beginning of everything, not just the beginning of that idea getting out into the world, but like the continuation uh, of that idea or that business harnessing the full power of the internet. And we're still in a world where the vast, vast majority of people on the internet are like consuming, right? They, they even if they want to uh, have this ability to create these more powerful things for the web. Um, so the website is like this initial beachhead that is 
accessible enough that we've created these visual development tools that with some, uh, you know, with some training, some education, you can create things that are like developer grade that only front end engineers um, and, and web designers could create before or web designers working with coders. And it is, it is like the most empowering thing that we could think of as like, how do you get people to access that economic and distribution power of the web, right? It's like, there's nothing quite like it. Like so many, even so many engineers, we have so many people using Webflow because it's such a close abstraction over the code behind the scenes, like HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. We have so many people telling us like, after learning Webflow, it's like a gateway for me to understand code, understand web development. Like it's a very common refrain like that that people tell us because it, it teaches you, it's not like a classic design tool. It teaches you uh, how to think about web primitives, like the box model, like CSS classes, uh, like JavaScript, uh, you know, events and um, and actions and triggers. And before you know it, you're kind of like, it's, it's like this gateway drug into, hey, now I'm like thinking more like a software engineer or thinking more like within the clay or the, the core primitives of the like this really important medium. I'm not just thinking like pictures or uh, what something looks like. I'm actually like forming the, the way that that a uh, software engineer will like build this thing. And so many uh, in the early days before visual development tools like Webflow existed, so many um, deep software engineers today who are like experienced professional software engineers uh, would often say, and this is my story too, that they had this aha moment of like the power of programming when they made their first website. It was like sometimes even like New Cities Land where they made their first website. And that's when they had the, the aha moment of like this thing that I created you know, this code that I wrote that I pushed up to this like server via FTP or whatever back back in those days is now seen and experienced and other people benefit from it or like it brought some distribution power that I didn't have before or whatever. And that serves as a gateway for them to like go deeper into programming, et cetera. So the website has like this magical entryway into a deeper part of, of the web. And I think we're still so far away from the amount of people who have ideas and want to create for the web and like being empowered to do so, we're still pretty far apart there. Even with like all the education, all the AI tools we have, uh, we're still pretty far apart uh, from being able to like truly create like really powerful things for the web. And, and that's what we're working towards, like bringing those developer superpowers into as many hands as possible, as quickly as possible. You have, you know, hinted at some big product bets coming. You've also said right now, it's like we're at the beginning when the printing press was first invented. I think even when the company started like 10 years ago, I was thinking of this printing press analogy of early days of the printing press where the people who had access to the true distribution power of like taking words and getting them to a lot more hands, getting their ideas and like all essentially influencing society was in the hands of the very few, right? Churches, heads of state, really rich people, everyone else is kind of consuming. We're kind of still in that early era of web development because the, the people who are able to build with HTML, CSS, JavaScript, React, databases, et cetera, they're still relatively few, right? And But when they create things, they, they have like disproportionate value. You could argue that it's not the best thing for the world in the long term, you would want to like make sure that that disproportionate value is available for more people to capture, right? Just like now uh, everyone or most of everyone being able to, um, you know, get their ideas out there by writing a book or whatever without like a lot of things in the middle to prevent you from doing that. Yeah, you still have to have great ideas and you still, it's not guaranteed that your 
your voice is going to be heard. And sometimes that's, you know, there are negative repercussions to being able to distribute uh, ideas worldwide uh, so quickly. But I think we're just in the relative beginning of getting people to really, just like we want to teach kids to think about, you know, math as a core language in their heads to like solve problems in the world. We're still very early in like getting people to um, think of programming or development or with the web as like this tool set that can solve so many different problems uh, in their lives and their businesses, etc. That I think looking back 10 years from now, where it's going to be a whole different story, it pr- probably won't be, uh, you know, like full penetration where like all 7 billion people on earth, 7 billion, billion people on earth don't even have access to the web today. Like, roughly more than half, uh, but like south of, you know, 65% of people are even online today. Um, so there's still a lot of like democratization and a lot of like um, inclusion in like this digital sphere of how you and I are used to operating that many people in the world don't even have access to, uh, let alone being able to create for it. So um, there's still a lot of work to do, that, even that playing field. There's a certain phrase, I can't remember the exact name of it. Basically, the idea is if you take a country like the US, we'll just say very developed, tons of technologies, lots of progress, whatever. And then you take whatever the one of the least developed countries is, you start to give them some of the same liberties, opportunities, technologies as the very developed markets, like they will level up very quickly. And one thing one thing I think about a lot is like, how do you let's take something like web development, right? In order to even learn it, let's say you're doing it traditionally in code, uh, to even learn it, let's say you're in a country that doesn't have a lot of these training resources localized. Right? You might not even have the internet. There might not even be cell towers. But even if you get the internet, like the things you have access to is primarily in English. That you have like this inherent disadvantage to even learn that I might not have had that disadvantage living here in America. And any barrier you can you can make smaller. So for example, if you take that, if you make that same capability possible visually, right, which like more people intuitively can grok that I can like move this box here or add an element inside without kind of having to go, um, you know, I can intuit that kind of thing. I can teach my kids to do that even when they're like really young. It's much harder to teach like way deeper technical concepts. Just by virtue of like lowering that barrier, you're actually uh, able to say, the ability for you to level up to the same level of outcomes, being able to create the same level of you know website application, et cetera. If we can make that learning curve smaller um, and have you like learn less, we could account for that disadvantage uh, and maybe um, leave you on like the same, if not better playing field than you know somebody in a more developed country like started with. We still have a lot of work to do there. Well, it reminds me kind of of when computers kind of first came out, it was all text based. It was, you had to go into DOS and type in the yeah. command. Like no one could do that. That's manual. And imagine like what the, what the graphic user interface and like the personal computer did. Uh, took all of that complexity, so much of it, and, and put it behind an interface that is much more natural. And that's exactly what we're doing with Webflow. Like we're taking like deeply technical concepts and we're um, like up-leveling them into like this visual uh, abstraction. It's still an abstract, like it's still, you know, to build like really technical things, it's not a trivial thing, right? You're not going to like build something really complex in 10 minutes. I think Steve Jobs used to call it like a bicycle for the mind, right? Like you get a deep enabler to help you do that much, much faster. And under the hood, like the same outcome happens in terms of like the code that's generated, et cetera. Do you remember free webs from way back in the day? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So that was when I made my first website. And I think that's when I learned, started to learn how to code because it was like insert an HTML box into the, the editor. And then you could then I would figure out how to customize it. And then I got into uh, Zanga and MySpace, like layouts and stuff with a friend. MySpace was probably the gateway for so many people to learn HTML customization. I don't know if you remember like all the hacks that happened because of that. And Facebook specifically banned like all code. You could not edit your Facebook profile, which was probably good. The user experience was, it was fun to create on MySpace, but sometimes browsing was like, you know, you'd go to someone's page and blast like a Green Day song or whatever, it just starts playing and... That was definitely the early wild west of the of the web where everyone was kind of like exploring what's possible. So I learned this first free webs and then learned to code. And then I think either Dreamweaver came out or I started using Dreamweaver. I forget order of operations, but it was so funny. I was like, oh, I know how to code. Why would I use Dreamweaver? I already know how to code this, which was not the right view to have is like, I think I was in eighth or ninth grade or something. But it's just funny. It's like, and it's obviously gotten so much more powerful too. But just bridging those two things. I don't even remember how to code at this point. Like if you if you had to throw me in there, I don't think I could make a website, but I used to just make them in Notepad. And then now it's, now I use Squarespace and my website hasn't been updated in two years. So. I honestly think if Dreamweaver, if they kept investing in it, it would have been so amazing. But the fact that they essentially like deprioritize it, sometimes I think Webflow wouldn't have existed if Dreamweaver kept uh, growing the way that it did. Uh, but then for whatever reason, they um, just kind of died. What happened there? What's that story with Dreamweaver? Like Adobe acquired Macromedia at some point and did they just deprioritize website design or? I don't remember exactly. I think it was, it was a period in the early 2000s where we were going through this like web standards movement because Dreamweaver is so based in like table-based layout design. It was basically oriented around like, hey, do anything you want and we'll generate the code that makes it look like that. But it wasn't always semantic. It wasn't like SEO friendly. Um, so it started developing this reputation of, uh, yeah, you can get things out there, but they're not good. If you ever have to get a developer to step in to like alter the code or even like augment it with something, you just can't, right? It's like a one-way door. And I think that created, that was one factor. And the other factor was like, they just stopped investing into it for some reason. I mean, they still, I mean, Dreamweaver still exists. I think some people still use it and it's still a product you can create or install through Creative Suite. But I think they really missed that window of like paying attention to web standards and the emergence of CSS where they kind of banked on this old technology of tables and like inline styles and kind of missed the, the large uh, movement that was happening to uh, convert to CSS. It was also a really hard period from 2000 to like 2010-ish where like that web standards movement involved so many different hacks, so many different, because browsers were so divergent. Internet Explorer wasn't working with well, at that at one point, it was like Netscape, uh, and then like Mozilla um, and Firefox was kind of new. And then by the time like Chrome emerged, only then did we start to talk about like true web standards movements, where more and more browsers started implementing the same thing, and you needed like CNC or hacks. So I think the problem was also really hard to solve. Whether it was like for Dreamweaver or someone else, like some of the first couple attempts at, at building Webflow had to like work around a lot of those those things. And some some of those problems are like really really hard to solve. So it was sort of like I'm not surprised uh, that Dreamweaver died the way it did. So essentially what the web was like back 20 years ago, however, however far back, you'd open the same website on 10 different browsers, however many existed, and it looked different on all the different browsers. It, it was tough to make it look the same. So especially um, on 
various versions of Internet Explorer. And you would have like the same, even Internet Explorer across different versions would have like different things. So there were all these like CSS and HTML hacks to like basically take advantage of some of the bugs in the browsers to, to make sure that, you know, you're rendering a certain thing only in like IE6. Uh, but not IE 5.5 and not Firefox uh, or Mozilla at the time. So it was, it was like this, you know, almost like this cottage industry of like web experts who like understood all these hacks. There were all these like CSS tricks uh, that, that made uh, layouts possible. And, uh, you know, then, then the industry started developing tests like the acid test to make sure that a single website with a bunch of different permutations that browser vendors would actually open that test and it would render the same across all of them. And, and then browsers started to get kind of into a competition around like, hey, we perform whatever, uh, 90 out of 100 on the acid test or look at like we hit 100. So it became this sort of... Um, race to make sure that there was like more standardization. Uh, I mean, there's still divergence in, um, you know, web technologies. If you go and, and look at like so many different, you know, CSS, HTML, uh, JavaScript sort of capabilities, there's still wide divergence, but there's way more coalescing in terms of like what is common before between all these browsers because of like the standards movement that's been happening. And you guys have this, I guess, philosophy or process, you call it responsive design. And that is that kind of a a little bit of a reflection of how this landscape has sort of evolved? I mean, responsive design is a core concept in um, in web design and CSS that essentially has one code base for different breakpoints. So different, uh, you know, when it used to be that you would create one UI that would load in a browser, and then if you open it up on the phone, uh, it was like the same wide you know, wide thing or whatever. It was technically uh, started to become a thing when, when browsers implemented called something called media queries, where you could say, hey, depending on the width of my browser um, or my viewport, like show different things. And, and that was like the emergence of single code base, but with lots of different rules for how things show up in, um, you know, different viewports. So that way, when you update your content on like your blog or uh, your website, you change your headline or whatever, you only change it in one place. And then like the design that you've specified for, you know, mobile, desktop, tablet, et cetera, just kind of like responds to that new content. And that's what the, our company was built around. Like when, when responsive design first became a thing, that's what we let truly differentiate on no other tool had a way to very quickly visually develop. Um, there were other website builders at the time, even like more professional ones like Dreamweaver, but um, uh, nobody really practiced uh, being able to design in one place across many different breakpoints and being able to like publish that in a way that with sim a similar level of code quality and performance, et cetera, as what a developer uh, would like write into Notepad or TextPad or like Sublime or VS Code or whatever. That's the core foundation of like how Webflow started. So essentially what I would probably have to do pre-Webflow is if I'm a designer, I mean, I'm working with an engineer to probably insert code. Maybe I'm using Dreamweaver or yeah. designing in Illustrator, InDesign, Photoshop, something. What did that process typically look like then before Webflow? I mean, it still kind of looks like this today where you have a designer working in something like Figma or Sketch uh, and then developers translating that to um, HTML, CSS, React, JavaScript, et cetera, where yeah. even, you know, responsive design is a concept to this day where you have to, you have to, you have like different frames in Figma that say, this is what it looks like in this resolution, in this view or whatever. And then developers go in and, um, you know, write the CSS across like different breakpoints around how that's actually going to translate to code. You know, Webflow solves that by 
putting a designer into that like build process to uh, have them define directly what they want things to look like across all breakpoints. So that way you don't need that translation layer. Especially like 10 years ago, the only way that this was happening was directly through code. Um, and we really backed that and made it visual. And there's multiple, um, you know, folks who have followed our lead when we were included, then added like breakpoints, et cetera. It's still the vast majority of the world is still working in this designer, hands off to a developer, developer translates the code, puts it into a code base, uh, kind of pushes it to production. Then you have like this whole back and forth process of like, whenever there's a change, you have to, you know, go to a developer, they push a pull request in GitHub or whatever, they push it to like a cloud vendor and then it's live. How long does that take? It depends. Like it, it depends on how like modern your team is. Sometimes you know, you have customers that say they've gone from like one to two month iteration cycles from like, you know, having a design ready to going to production because the wait for engineering, et cetera, to like multiple hours uh, in terms wow. of you just go, just go live when a design is ready. But it, it really depends. Some teams, some uh, developer teams are like operating really quickly, right? Like where that's their that's the bread and butter. Sometimes that's faster. Um, so it really depends on how teams work. But for the vast, vast majority of our customers, like we have like 10x more, 10x plus type of improvements in terms of like efficiency from when you go from design to production. Based on what you've described, the sweet spot on customer right now is almost like a quote unquote mid-market, but fast growing because it's a startup that's hopefully going to grow on Webflow. What is kind of like the average customer kind of look like if you had to bucket into the prototypes? Any... Um, growing company, any what we call it tech enabled, like any company that sees their website as a core marketing asset. Sometimes it's like a person YC startup, uh, right? Where one of the founders is using Webflow directly and then like scaling it. Where we see more and more adoption is like larger and larger teams, but typically those start small. But with the larger your team gets, the more the more sort of collaboration features you need, the more scale uh, you need. Like typically that's when your website starts to go into, you know, hundreds, if not thousands, if not tens of thousands, not hundreds of thousands of pages, a lot of different CMS configurations, a lot of integrations, et cetera. So um, I wouldn't say we have like, a sweet, sweet spot because like so many companies need websites, like deep customization, code level customization, uh, where you don't want your brand or your startup to be like a generic template or something like that. And the vast, vast majority of startups want that. And then they grow into, our goal is always to like make sure that they never graduate. They don't need to graduate back to code uh, or they like, they have all the capabilities in our, like, our website sort of development platform that you can do everything you need on it. And we have a bunch of tools that are like, you know, you can bring in a developer to augment with custom code, but it's still squarely like the source of truth is on the platform, right? Where a developer kind of plugs in some low code only where it's needed, where there's not like core capability and like we might not have a no code option um, because there's like that, there's so many edge cases for teams to do like different integrations, things they want to render on their website, but more and more so there's less and less reason to like go the full code option. So you've got everything from two-person startups to how big is the biggest customer in terms of number of seats or how much they're paying you or how big the company is? Are you comfortable sharing? One of our biggest customers on all on like a lot of different measures is Orange Theory Fitness. Uh, so they run all their marketing off of Webflow and, and more than that, like there's a lot that goes into running that kind of like web operation. I mean, we have a ton of customers across like New York Times and Amazon and Procter & Gamble, et cetera, et cetera. But the vast, vast majority are like the 2,000 person type of companies or sub 1,000 person companies. And sometimes, you know, you said two person startups and I said that too, like one person startups, freelancers, agencies who are like trying to make a, you know, a business for themselves. And that's actually one of the best like parts of our platform. We have so many people like 
hundreds of thousands of people now who are like, I make a living off of Webflow. You know, if it didn't exist, like I, I wouldn't be able to like put food on the table or yeah. so many, you know, cards and letters around like, I bought my house because of Webflow because they like learn this new skill that essentially makes them into a developer. We call them a visual developer, but they become like a, a web developer that is creating professional grade, developer grade type of web experiences for, for businesses that makes their skill like so valuable to others. And oftentimes these larger companies will like, go higher from that pool of like freelancers, agencies, uh, you know, individuals who like know Webflow inside and out in order to transform their own marketing operation to like go faster, to bring in somebody who's like an expert and then like see the team and then grow that team. I'll almost go back to the beginning. I don't know what's the best beginning to start, but you are you were not born in the U.S. originally, right? I was born in the U.S.S.R., Southern Russia, on the border of kind of Georgia and Russia. Came here with my parents when I was nine. Why did they move? Any specific reason? Kind of a long story, but it was, uh, we came here as refugees because of religious persecution. That was like the official reason. So my parents were um, of a, in Stellar, um, of a religion that is like super common here. It's, you know, Protestant Baptist, but in the USSR, there was a lot of persecution, but like the state didn't really see, you know, religion as like a, a valid thing. Um, so like a lot of things had to be underground. A lot of, uh, you know, my dad had a hard time like staying employed because people knew that he was uh, he was of that religion like that created thankfully some people in the u.s had like noticed that and like lobbied congress to open up some like refugee quotas um and we were just like, lucky enough through a whole series of events lucky to make it as part of like that initial refugee wave and man that was if that hadn't happened my life would have been so so different it's kind of funny my parents didn't actually want to come here because they were so conditioned by the state to like think of like america's eagle like this is where there would be even more challenges but thankfully my grandma uh, my mom uh, my dad's mom filled out the application on their behalf and only when things were kind of like conditionally approved they're like hey maybe we'll take that risk and they had six kids at the time there were six of us to you know up and move they were like 33 i believe to move to a different country that you know you grew up being told by the government was like our, our enemy, right? To come here. And like the experience was the direct opposite of that. When we came here, you know, that was the, the fear that our, our parents sort of like told us about. But then like from day one, everyone wrapped their arms around us um, and accepted us into this country, which is like, I'm deeply, deeply grateful for. How did your parents survive moving across the world, literally opposite side of the planet with six kids as refugees? What happened when you guys got here? Oh man, there's a, I actually don't know if I've ever told this story, but we didn't even have suitcases. My mom like bought these super cheap rugs in Russia. I think she, she like sewed into like these makeshift suitcases. Uh, they were basically like bundles of like cloth that we put stuff inside. They were so unorthodox. I think we had like one per person. That's what, what we were allowed to take on the plane. Literally in the seats or did you at least get to stow them? Yeah. Um, they were too big to mention these massive rugs. Uh, yeah, I wish I had a picture uh, of what these look like. I have it in my memory. So imagine like those like uh, black and red rugs that have like a pattern that it's almost like you you create a duffel bag out of them, but like a larger duffel bag. Is it almost like a teardrop shape? Like she like tied them together at the top or something? And it's... I think of just a duffel bag, like an army duffel bag, but bigger with some like edges and like, uh, you know, two handles. And then half of those, by the time we arrived to New York, so we went to New York was, was a stop and then to San Francisco and then to Sacramento. When we arrived to New York, uh, we realized that a bunch of documents were missing. So my parents didn't find documents for some of our kids, myself included. Thankfully, we figured that out. They allowed us to go into San Francisco. When we arrived to San Francisco and had like the sponsored family from Sacramento uh, pick us up, 
And the, the way that refugee immigration works is that you have to have a family that like vouches for you and said like, hey, we're going to help. Like acclimate them and. Yeah, get on their feet, et cetera. Um, and when we arrived to San Francisco, half of those bags were missing. Um, and there was like, no record of them. And, you know, to my parents, it's like, you know, they're half their earthly possessions. And they, they just like, knowing how life was in Russia, they just assumed this was lost, right? Then we get to, um, to Sacramento. And like the next day, my dad finds out that the airline is going to pay to reimburse for each, um, you know, for each lost, you know, bag or whatever. And I think it was like $600 a bag for the four lost bags out of the eight. And, you know, he gets like more money than he's ever seen. It's like $2,200 or something like that. And this is in the 90s, right? This is 91, like December 91. That's a decent amount of money. That is a decent amount of money. And like, we also had to go on welfare right away. Uh, that's how like the refugee program works. So I think that was like a year and a half. But with that, with that came things like food stamps so you can get food, uh, like rental assistance. I mean, we were like living really modestly. But that initial amount of money that my my dad got, to him, it was always a dream. He had always like heard about computers, but everything in Russia was like 10 years behind, right? They were like soldering their own, you know, circuit boards or whatever. So the first thing, like all of that money goes into buying an IBM 386 personal computer in the first like, you know, I think four months of us being in America, which then my dad, um, you know, he didn't know the language, but he started like diving into learning as much as he could and like figuring out what sort of side jobs he could get. Initially, it was like soldering, um, like doing these like circuit boards where he get, he would get a lot over, um, he would get them over mail and then, you know, put them together and mail them off. You know, my mom started doing these things. Um, I remember a sort of like, or some sort of sewing factory. I think she would get like pieces of, of leather or like boots and she would sew them together and return them, which is also one of these like mail order type of like jobs you do at home. And I just remember doing them a ton of, you know, at some point we started like cleaning offices, like dental offices as a family. So like a lot of different things to try to make ends meet. Eventually my dad, because of kind of what he learned through his like computer experience, kind of got uh, a job as like an IT support guy um, at like this dental office. Uh, and then like kind of expanding, learned how to do uh, like networking, uh, you know, how to like route network cables. And then like it recruited myself, my older brother, my younger brother. We would like crawl in the, you know, in the attics. In like, the tight little... spaces. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I have so many holes in my head from like the scars of hitting the, oh, really? a lot of roofs. You know, you like have a very small roof where you have, uh, you know, fiberglass for the insulation. And then you're like crawling to get cables into like the walls in tight spaces. And a lot of roofs have nails that go through the roof and like come out inside. And that's so many times. And it's dark. You can't see anything. Yeah, we would have like, you know, flashlights and uh, but it was never a pleasant experience. But we, we did things like that to like make ends meet. Um, and eventually, you know, my parents were able to buy a house in like uh, 99, 1999. So this was about eight ish years later. Yeah. And my dad still does that. He's like an IT, I, IT manager for the same exact business where he started initially. Uh, it just like we've expanded into more, you know, more clinics and that's what he does to this day. Wow. That's awesome. And then you mentioned 1999. I also saw you said in 1999, you designed the first website you ever made was for a movie with Brad Pitt. How does that happen? Guy cleaning dental offices to suddenly designing websites for movies. This was a, um, a self-practice type of thing. It wasn't for the movie itself. I was a junior in high school. And I remember taking this web design class in like the local college, kind of got some interest in it because it was using one, one other thing like my dad tried to do is he tried, tried to start this business to like sell PVC pipes 
back to the USSR because they only had, um, you know, they didn't have like that kind of plastic. It was all old lead pipes or copper pipes or whatever. And he like recruited me to do like the entire catalog to basically translate it from English to Russian. But that involved like having to learn graphic design to like draw all these pipes and make them like look natural. So I kind of got this, uh, it, well, that led me into uh, kind of trying to make ends meet and like working at this kind of Russian yellow pages business where I was making like business cards and, you know, ads and things like that. Or Russian language in the U.S.? In Sacramento, yeah, which is like, there's a huge population of uh, Russian, Ukrainian, and um, Moldovan, a lot of like Slavic type of folks who came over as refugees. Uh, and that created like an entire community of like Russian-speaking churches, businesses, et cetera. But that, that kind of got my, you know, design, got my brain oriented around like, how do I learn like more design skills? And I started getting interested in like 3D animation and, and web design. So I took this class and, and it was a class that was, uh, had Dreamweaver installed. It was like the teacher was like, Dreamweaver. And she said, you know, like pick a, pick a movie that you want to make a, a site for. And I remember it was like a movie that I just recently saw, which I probably shouldn't have seen based on how old I was. It was the movie Snatch with Brad Pitt, where he like, has this like really weird accent. But I took the actual website that they had and tried to recreate it in Dreamweaver and then like made it work exactly like that one did. So that was like my first website project, but it wasn't for a client. I didn't get paid. It was just like practicing, um, practicing making things like that. But I'm assuming it probably helped lead to Webflow, obviously. Yeah, that then I ended up building a couple of sites based on that experience for actually my dad's boss's business, uh, which was a dental clinic. And then that led to other clients through referrals, et cetera. Yeah, I think you have this, it's like an epic pinned tweet on your Twitter. It's like, he goes through like a 10 year journey of you tried to start Webflow four times, kept failing. I know you've told the story a lot, but how did that go? What was that, the first attempt? What did that look like? I think this was 2004 or 2002? 2005 was the first like real, real attempt. TLDR of that was, I was doing this like graphic design stuff. And that got me um, kind of thinking about like 3D animation um, because, you know, Pixar was becoming a thing, like all these movies started becoming popular. But then when I, uh, when it was time to go to college, just like 2000, 2001, you know, I had this like identity crisis of like, what do I want to do? I want to become an artist, but my, you know, like my parents are telling me, my brother's telling me that there's like, it's not a lucrative career. And my parents were also like, you know, I got into the school on the East Coast. Where they're like, I don't know if we can, you know, afford for you to go there. And even if you get scholarships for us to like help you travel there, they're like, why, why don't you just go to the same school your brother went, which is Cal Poly uh, in San Luis Obispo. I just ended up going there to like study computer science, but I hated it so much. Like I was terrible at it. I, you know, every day was sort of like, um, I was really struggling uh, with, with learning all of that. So I just dropped out at the time, seemed like foolishly to my parents, moved up here to San Francisco to go to the Academy of Art to study 3D animation and visual effect to try to make it to be a Pixar. Long story short, though, that didn't work out. I learned two years in, which by the way, the first two years, you learn nothing about 3D animation. You have to learn, learn like classic art and sculpture and illustration and perspective and color theory, which is all great to learn, but I wasn't really, like really learning the things that I wanted to learn. And I saw that so many of the students who were in that school learning 3D animation, like really struggling with getting stable jobs because a lot of 3D animation projects would be like movie by movie. And by the time the movie is over, you just like get let go, right? It's a lot of free chips. And it, it just became pretty clear that it was like maybe not the best path commercially. Uh, so then I went back to to Cal Poly um, and because I had, I, it was at 
private, non-accredited school that required a bunch of loans. And I got a job right away um, as an intern um, when I went back to Cal Poly at this web design agency, just because that's the first job I could get, start to like pay back the student loans. And it was there that I saw this, I just happened to have this experience where there was a design team and I was a developer. The design team made like incredible design work for like these big name clients like Apple, Tennis Channel, Quicksilver, um, et cetera, where I was taking their designs and I was translating them to HTML, CSS, JavaScript, and like this custom CMS that they had. And it was minimum wage. You know, I was doing this like kind of road translation work. And then I saw this invoice for like what the agency was charging clients. And oh my God, Trenton, like when I saw, it was essentially a designer doing work for maybe like five days, me doing the translation work for like three days, you know, getting paid minimum wage. That person getting paid not much more than minimum wage. And that this every line item was like $100,000 of like value that the customers saw from like the work that we were doing. And yeah, there was like other things that, you know, they got along with that. But it was like such a stark in my mind. It was like, holy crap, this web development thing is so powerful. And yet we're, uh, you know, we have the two people in the process that A, are both frustrated because the designer can't do what they want. And I'm kind of in this like boring translation uh, role. And I just came from this 3D animation world where these creatives are, you know, working at Pixar are creating massive worlds or like these animations. And so many of them are technical, like with like fluid effects, hair effects, uh, you know, rigging systems and all this stuff is visual, right? They like they're directly manipulating it, pressing a button that goes to the render server and ends up on the screen. You, you don't have like this translation layer of like somebody going like, boop, 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 like 3D. I'm going to yeah. 3D boxes uh, for what for what like the uh, animator wanted to see. It's like the animator directly creating that stuff and like making it real. And that's when the initial aha moment came like, holy crap, why does something like that not exist for web design? Dreamweaver we were sort of kind of in that space from so far away from being like very visual and like kind of what, what I imagined to be like the best possible solution. Like that initial idea came. But the technology at the time was all like backend, right? Browsers, like I mentioned before, were not mature enough to build things in the browser. Responsive design wasn't a thing. You couldn't actually, in order to build something like what Webflow is today, you kind of had to build your own browser. Imagine like Google Maps. The reason Google Maps works, you know how it's like really, um, it was one of the first like Ajax applications where you weren't just interacting with like you load a site and there's content. That's when you started like interacting and you can, it started to feel like an application. Like previous to that, you couldn't really do things like that on the web. You can only do like presentational stuff. Web like loads, maybe you have a GIF that like animates or whatever, but there wasn't much that you can like make a website um, or something that's in the browser work like a web application uh, or like a local uh, like program or something. Exactly, exactly. That was like the original, like I tried so many different things to make something like Webflow, but it, like the technology just wasn't ready. And then I couldn't stick to it for too long because I then like fell in love, got married. My wife's like, you kind of have to have like a real dress <laughs> yeah. and make it um because we have to like live somewhere. And then, you know, that led me to getting quote unquote, a real job at Intuit. And then I tried a couple more times um, during Intuit with like different co-founders, but that those like failed for different reasons or petered out for different reasons, I would say, like didn't succeed for different reasons. And then it was a, you know, a long series of like very lucky events that I kind of almost gave up on it after attempt number three. And like a few years later, I already like had two kids. I was sort of like quote unquote settled down. We're living in Sacramento and then all kinds of awesome things happen. Like we got a magical like trademark, you know, approval that 
got denied like five years before and somehow... Wait, it just showed up? Like literally in one of the, the third failure in 2007, 2007-ish, the key reason that failed, like we raised a little bit of money, uh, we incorporated, we started building the product. Then we got basically a cease and desist that you can't use the name Webflow because another company uh, had uh, the trademark for Webflow for like class 42, which is like website software or whatever. And we went through all this legal stuff to try to like recover the name. Eventually, uh, like had to come up with a different name, called it uh, Marked Up, HTML Markup, uh, but with all the missing out, all the missing vowels because you couldn't get the domains at the time. But essentially in that process, we had formally tried to apply for the trademark with the US government. And then was rejected and said like, no, because this other company is like saying that it conflicts with their stuff, that you can't have it. And then, you know, I was so attached to the name and we, you know, some of the other co-founders kind of, kind of like lost energy around it. We ran out of money. We were still working, uh, you know, our day jobs. So it sort of like petered out. And then I totally forgot about that. And then in 2011, this was like four years later, I had already moved multiple times cities and, uh, you know, moved to Sacramento at that point. And like in a sealed envelope, in one of those like padded, you know, do not bend fragile type of things, open it up, trademark certificate for uh, Webflow for like Webflow LLC. And I still don't know to this day what happened. Like my best guess is that because we had an application on file, even though it was like formally rejected, at some point something expired or they forgot to renew it or they or that company no longer wanted that trademark. Something cleared and we got granted the trademark. I saw as like a clearly a sign that, all right, something's meant to be here. That's when like the ball got rolling again. I'm like, okay. And, and at that point it became a little harder to consider like starting a startup again. I had two kids already. They're very young. We were like, you know, not in a great financial position, but it was like so many things came together that was like, I, I just have to see this through. Well, I was going to say when I started Banana on my fund, I had a newborn. She was like, I don't know, a month or two old. And then also a four-year-old. And it was kind of, there's a similar thing. It was just a lot of things that kind of intersected yeah. all, all at once. And I was like, I just kind of have to do this. This is the time I thought I would eventually. I was always, always really wanted to do it, but it was just kind of, and similar with my wife. She was like, I don't know if this is the best time, but I support you. You know, she was like, we got to figure a lot of shit out. But honestly, I'm so grateful for, for my wife because it was like this, it was ultimately her push uh, where she was like, look, I know this is going to be hard. Like, I don't want you, like, knowing how important this has been, like, to see this idea through. Like, I don't want any of us, like, both of us to be, you know, feel like you have, like, a massive regret of something that you wanted to do with your life, but you didn't. Um, and that was, you know, that was the push that I needed. And, and like, that's an incredible partner in that. Was she with you the whole time you've been doing this? The entire time. Really? Okay. So she saw first time, second time, third time. Every single, well, she saw part of the first time when we first met and started dating, I was already like the tail end of the first one sort of petering out, you know, me already knowing that, by the way, we only dated for like three months before we got engaged. It was like a fast, it was kind of a fast journey, but she, yeah, she was like there from the very beginning. That's awesome. I feel like it's a very underrated thing. Not enough people talk about you need supportive people around you, but supportive partners too. Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't think anything with Webflow would have happened the way it did. If it wasn't for my partner, my kids, my co-founders, uh, partners, and just the support that we've had takes the village. What was the moment specifically that you decided to go all in on Webflow again for the fourth time? Was it that trademark envelope showing up? So funnily enough, it wasn't. That was December-ish 2011. But sometime early in, um, this was uh, February 2012, 
I just happened to see that, you know, Facebook was still a thing. I was still using Facebook. I think it's still a thing. I think so. Grandparents use it. Yeah, somebody had shared this video. Like it randomly came across my feed. This talk called Inventing on Principle by Brett Victor, which I saw that video. It's about an hour video. And it happens to be all around like this marriage of programming and visual direct manipulation. It talks about, you know, animation tools and like electronic design tools um, and just generally doing like art and code mixed together. But it also talks about like, what is the purpose behind the work that you do in your life? Like what is, what drives, um, you know, like what you want the kind of the meaning of your contributions to the world to be. And that the combination of those two things, like the direct manipulation part of the talk and the what is like the the purpose behind your work? Like when I saw that video, literally that same night, I read through, there's another, on that same, um, on Brett Victor's website, worrydream.com, is another paper called Magic Inc., which is all about visual software creation. That the combination of those two, two things, I'm like, all of these ideas came back of like, and I, at that point I had thought that all these other competitors, like Weebly, which was like blowing up, like, all right, they already saw Album. Like, I'm not going to try to, it's too late. But when I read that paper and I saw that talk, it was like, no, we, there's still so much more to solve here. And literally the next morning I was talking to my manager and saying like, hey, I'm not going to be like, I'm, uh, let's start talking about how I can like transition uh, away from my job so I can start. But that's when I knew, that's when I, like that same night, talked to Natalia and my wife, that we need to make this happen. The next week I was already in Mountain View looking for an apartment, which it was so sudden that I had to find it right away. Like my, my wife didn't even look at it. Uh, she like totally just trusted me and got like the first place we could find. And then we moved here, uh, still, still kept my day job at Intuit for a while, but just like shifted my schedule to start at like 6.30 in the morning to like 2.30 in the afternoon. And, and then 2.30 to like seven, I would just go to Red Rock Coffee in, uh, in Mountain View and just like code all day. Like that's when uh, you know, the sport iteration Webflow started then convinced my brother to join, then convinced uh, my coworker um, at, at Intuit to join as well as a third co-founder. And then it was kind of off to the races after that. Yeah, off to the races. But from what I know from the outside, it sounds like it was, I mean, it wasn't all gravy right to start. It sounds like you had to burn through a bunch of, yeah, you had about three months of savings that you burned through pretty quick. Kept working at Intuit up through... August of that year. Then that's when we go like, you know, I'd sold all my Intuit stock, which was the worst time to sell. I think my strike price was like 20 bucks and the actual like stock price was like 20, 20 bucks and 50 cents or whatever. <laughs> Everything possible to get like a, all the savings that we could. And that gave us three, three months of like personal runway, meaning like some money to like incorporate and like start the company. And that like, we went in with all this confidence that Hey, we're going to make this Kickstarter video. We're going to, you know, incorporate, put all this money towards creating this Kickstarter and then get a ton of cash uh, to then like building the actual, the actual business. And that didn't work out. Like we spent all of our money on that Kickstarter, except for like, you know, a few thousand dollars. And uh, in the end, we never even finished it because we found out that Kickstarter, it's against our terms of service to have like software products that are not downloadable. So anything that is like SaaS was against our terms of service at the time. And I think it still is. We just didn't read the terms of service. Um, and by that time, we had, like, you know, we had to like pay to like rent this Airbnb uh, loft to like film the thing. And all of our, we didn't have enough money to like reshoot everything because all of our, um, the entire video was like, hey, Kickstarter, um, oh, uh, no. like, we want to get this off the ground or whatever. Um, so, so that kind of died. Um, Did the video ever go live anywhere? Like, you 
no, only internally. And it's, and it's a disaster. It's like, well, it's not a disaster. It's sort of like a historical relic at this point, but we thought we were funny. Like, you know, keyboard cat was a meme at the time. And we try to make like it pretty funny. I got like uh, my brother Sergi to dress up as a cat. You kind of have to see it to believe it. Uh, it was really, really, really cringy. I'm, gra- I'm glad it never went live. Uh, but we also didn't finish, like it was sort of like halfway finished, right? Because we had most of the uh, kind of live shots, but didn't, couldn't finish like the product demo parts. Then we just had to apply to YC and got rejected the first time. And, and that's when like the, you know, run out of like personal funds started to borrow against credit cards. And then my, um, unfortunately, my daughter had like a, a really kind of major medical event that uh, because we had only catastrophic um, uh, health insurance that like didn't know at the time, wasn't calculating that, uh, you know, it happened in December 2012, where you kind of like pay for all the tests that are like beyond your deductible. So you have to pay your entire deductible, which for was like $10,000. And then it like rolls over to the next year when she had the actual like surgery. That is like a brand new deductible. So you have to like pay $10,000 in deductible plus like co-insurance or whatever. So immediately we're like, way in the hole just because of that event. And that's where we got to like this, all right, we only have like a month or two of, of like even emotional runway, because at that point, like, you know, we're starting to like really risk families, um, kind of like long-term, like every rent payment was essentially doing another credit card, uh, one of those balance transfers, like checks that you write to yourself. And then I think you sold your cars that you own too, and you like lease new ones to get some, take some cash out basically. Exactly. So like with the two cars that we had, with my car and my wife's car, we just sold to get liquidity, essentially convert to monthly payments. Whatever equity we had in those cars, we got as much cash as we could. And thankfully over time, it wasn't until we got into YC and got funding like almost a year later that we got some small amount of salaries starting to roll in. Even in that state of, well, like constantly borrowing, when we when we knew that we were already gotten into YC and like a little bit was coming in, we were able to like convince ourselves that, you know, better days are coming. It was constantly this like kind of the edge of risk and hope, but there's always like some light at the end of the tunnel. And thankfully we never reached like the full, you know, we got to give up. And even when we were close to giving up, we were, we were still talking about like, we're going to go back to our jobs and like moonlight and keep working on this thing until we can like make it better and then like maybe break out independently again. How did you get through that? Man, I, um, sometimes I, you know, it might be like revisionist history that I'm kind of thinking back on, on those days. I just remember always feeling optimistic about something's going to happen. It's going to go right for us. Even when I was already starting to make these like really, really risky, like financial decisions. Like, I think there was always this sort of exuberant optimism that, it's going to work out. Uh, it's going to work out. Like maybe that that could also be denial because a lot of times, maybe even more often, it doesn't work out when you're in those situations. And I, you know, have a lot of survivorship bias uh, that kind of might be informing how I look back on it. But I just remember, thankfully, had a lot of great people around, uh, around me, my brother being one of my co-founders, like where we were like keeping each other sort of like motivated. Um, and, and of course, my wife, even though we were going through a lot of like hardship, kept encouraging me around like, okay, what is reasonable in terms of if you do believe that you can build something that will get some traction and there will be like another light at the end of the tunnel, like, let's keep going. It was, you know, having her encouragement and support was all, was a huge, huge part of that. So you mentioned didn't get into YC, then you did. There's a really interesting story to getting into YC. How did that play out? I have to dig up this video that at one point made it on TechCrunch where we go to this, to the first 
interview that we had, we didn't get an interview the first time we applied. The second time we applied, we got an interview um, because this was already after we had gotten some traction. But we show up, we do all this research around like who we might be interviewed by. There's like this app at the time called PGBot that you can, you know, load up with a bunch of questions and it trains you to answer questions in like 10 seconds. This is PG Paul Graham, the YC. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. So we do all this practice and then we show up and there's like this person that we don't know. It's not on the website and happened to be Kevin Hale, who's a new partner or like a visiting partner. And he was the founder of Wufu, which is like this form builder, but he's like so deeply entrenched in like web design uh, and web technology. And it was like having an expert grill us around every single, you know, hole you could poke in our, in our strategy. Like he knew where to press to see if we, you know, knew what we were talking about. So we walk out of this thing is, you know, 10 minutes long and we feel shell-shocked. If we were like, this went terrible uh, because we don't know if we answered like even half of those questions correctly. Definitely seems to be a lot of skepticism around whether we made it or not or whether the idea is even valid. So we're like super nervous. And the way that YC works is you get a phone call if you're in or you get an email if you're rejected. And they promise that all of that will happen in the evening. They don't give like a specific time, but they say after all the interviews, they convene and then they make a decision. And then you either get a phone call and then emails go. Phone calls go out first, then emails out later. So we're like super nervous. We go, this is downtown Mountain View. We go to some like beer garden or something where we grab a beer um, and we're trying to like relax. And there's still like three hours left uh, until the evening. So we're like, okay, let's kill time because we feel so bad about this interview. So we go and watch a movie in Oblivion with Tom Cruise happens to be like going live that, that same day. So we were halfway through this movie and I'm like watching my phone like a hawk. You're probably not watching the movie at all. Exactly. Um, and somewhere halfway through the movie, a phone call comes through six, 650 area code. I'm like, all right, this has got to be, you know, somebody from, from IC. So I jump out into the hall. This is Mountain View Century Cinema 16 for anyone familiar with that place across the Computer History Museum. And so I run out. It's Paul Buchheit, uh, PB, the, the inventor of Gmail on the phone with like one of the panelists in the interview. And he doesn't say my name, doesn't say the company's name. He just says like, hey, we would love to have you uh, join YC. Like, do you accept our terms, et cetera? I'm like, absolutely. And like Bryant and Sergi, my co-founders are, you know, they saw that I, I left uh, and they come out and they see like the expression on my face. I'm like, obviously super happy. Obviously we yep. accept, et cetera. And then we, each of us call, you know, I call my wife, Sergi calls his girlfriend, um, Brian calls his girlfriend as well. And we're like, let's get together for dinner to celebrate. Uh, you know, we set up a time, maybe an hour, an hour and a half later, because this is like 4.30, pick a restaurant and we agree to meet there. And some, some of these folks are in like San Francisco, so that they have to come down. Um, my wife has to like pick up kids from, you know, preschool at the time and, you know, meet there or whatever. So we're like, okay, we have time to kill. We still have like an hour and a half before we have to go to dinner um, and we're all in one car. So let's go finish watching the movie. So we go finish watching the movie and I'm like sitting there and still for whatever reason, like checking my checking my phone. And then I get a, no- a notification of an email and it literally says exactly the reason why, why I would reject Webflow. It's like, we believe that it's too complicated for most users and not sophisticated enough and power users like developers. Kevin was a developer. He was like, okay, it's missing a lot of things that developers would want. And uh, other people in the room who were like less of a power user, like this isn't going to land with consumers, right? And it was like the perfect reason, right? And we don't believe that this is going to be like a venture scale type of business for those reasons, right? But they just told you you got in. Exactly. So we're like, I show the guy, I show Brian and Sergi like the, the, like the email and we, we walk out into the, um, you know, the foyer again. 
And we're like, what is going on? Because this email is like so specific. Yeah. And we start second guessing the phone call. Yeah, because he didn't say your name or Webflow. But, and maybe I'm just like, I don't remember, you know, all saying these things, but I'm just like, it didn't say anything about Webflow. It didn't say anything about me. Maybe the phone call is a mistake because this email is like so specific. So we try to call, you know, that number back. We try to respond to the email. We try to, we're like, what's going on? We call our, uh, you know, significant others say like, Dinner's house. We don't know what's going on. <laughs> oh, yeah. And like an hour goes by, we like, we don't hear anything. And we're like so confused. They were like, all right, the only thing we can think of is like, let's drive to where we had the interview and see if anybody's still there. It's already like 6.15 at that point. So, you know, it's already like starting to um, kind of getting towards the evening. So we start driving there and halfway there, we get a phone call from the person who sent the email that was like, hey, sorry, the email was a mistake. Somebody like misread the row or whatever. But it was like such a roller coaster where we were like, wait, we got in to then, you know, we got rejected for like, the the reason that we would probably pick it, it made sense for why we would be rejected uh and then to like finding out we got in again you know an hour and a half later so that was definitely a probably the biggest emotional roller coaster in like a constrained constrained amount of time that i remember experiencing outside of the birth of my kids and, and that kind of thing how did yc go do you recommend yc was it worth it absolutely one of the best things we ever did not only is it an amazing network but like yc pushed us so far beyond our, like we, I honestly thought that our product wasn't monetizable yet. I wasn't comfortable because I was a freelancer before building websites for, for clients. Like I sort of, and I was like really, really price sensitive. I knew what price sensitive clients were. And I knew what was possible with other tools like WordPress. I was like, we can't start charging until we have like baseline functionality. You know, when we first, uh, when we first like were developing Webflow, it was like a sing- single page. I didn't have a CMS, you can do a, like, you can build a blog. So you would be like exporting a single page. You'd make a bunch of single pages that you would basically export into something else or? If you only, if your website is like one page, right? Like totally just any page, which ours was at the time, because it's just like announcing what's coming. But yeah, primarily people are like exporting and like using it, building it into some other code base or whatever. But we were so uncomfortable with charging. We thought that like nobody is going to pay for this. But YC, um, like some of the YC partners were like, you have to, you have to start creating a real business. You have to like find out whether like who's actually willing to pay so that you can know which customers to like concentrate on. Uh, otherwise, you're not only going to run out of money, like you're not going to create a business. Right. And and I think that for lack of a better word, pressure or that encouragement forced us to do some things that we wouldn't have done ourselves. And, and that set us on a really good trajectory. I mean, it still it still took we had like a big emotional hit where we you know, we have this this like waiting list at this wait list of like 30, almost 39,000 people, like close to 40,000 people who were like, hey, notify me when Webflow goes live, that we had like this impression that we were going to convert a bunch of those people. But when we actually, when we actually launched, maybe like sub 50 of those 40,000 converted to actually paying. And it was like such a shock to like the, the expectation. We were like, oh, maybe, maybe we'll convert like 5%, 10% yeah, of those people. It's like 0.1%, right? Exactly. For those people, it was, they were like so obsessed over the product uh, and it was so, um, you know, helpful for them that, you know, we just leaned into making them successful, which then like started growing our community. And it was enough of like that um, initial kernel to to grow upon. I think YC was a huge, huge factor um, in, in us getting to that point. And of course, like, helped with fundraising and all that. There's been periods where you didn't raise a lot of money, but you raised money right after YC. We had quite a bit of trouble raising our seed round. Like a lot of companies at Dempsey 
had, uh, you know, their entire round filled. We, we were aiming to, we wanted to, like other companies were raising like $2 million, sometimes, you know, $3 million, et cetera. We set a target of 1.5, but in like after demo day and through the next month or so, we had only raised something like 350K. And there's a lot of skepticism around like, hey, it's too early or, you know, some of that early traction kind of converting or not converting a ton of people. Like, yeah, that's uh, scary. Wasn't the best signal. Not that we like openly shared that, but we had been loud enough about that that people could kind of connect the dots. But it was a, I remember we had raised like 350K in commitments and we were like just so demotivated. Like we had talked to like 80 or 90 investors at that point and getting a lot of like either no's or like usually silence. Like, hey. Did you ghost you after the conversation? Not quite ghost, but they wouldn't like give us an answer. And at one point we, we were so um, kind of tired of, you know, had like these daily like panic attacks uh, of like, are we going to survive kind of thing? Are we going to finish this round? And I remember talking to Paul Graham and he was like, look, you guys have 350K. There's three of you. You have enough to just like hunker down. Yeah, maybe you can't hire anybody else, but you can hunker down and just keep building for the next year and then like see where you get. And you can just go tell all your investors that we're just like done raising. Because like at that point, we were struggling with like our product wasn't getting better. A lot of like the early customers were like, we're seeing more and more bugs. We weren't actually like on support as much because we we're trying to fundraise. And he was like, just get back to building. And that was actually some of the best advice because we went to all the investors like we were talking with and like sent out an email that's saying like, hey, we're basically done raising. We raised 350K and we're going to move on. And that like that email made quite a few of those investors like say, whoa, 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 wait a second. Uh, maybe we want to put in a little more. Oh, they put in more. Yeah, yeah. Not, not the existing investors, but some of the laggards. Like it, it wasn't even us putting in artificial, you know, timeframes. We were basically so tired. They were like, all right, we're done. Yeah. And that sort of led to uh, some of them saying, just kidding. Like we, uh, we want to invest. So we ended up raising 1.4. That pretty quickly snowballed. And then from there was uh, where we kind of followed more of the, uh, we tried to grow pretty fast and hired quite a few people, but then got into a place where we weren't growing fast enough and couldn't raise a series A um, and saw our cash dwindling pretty quickly and just decided like, hey, we have to stay default alive. Like we're going to stop hiring. We're going to like get a lot more lean um, and we're not going to like hire more people until like revenue catches up with expenses. And then we got to that point in like 2015. And when we got there, it was like, hey, uh, this is actually pretty awesome. Like we're in control of our destiny. We don't need any additional capital. And we kind of operated that way all the way up until 2019 when the business was already like, I think it was north of 10 million ARR. And at that point it was, you know, had gotten enough scale that it started attracting more investor interest. And that's when we were able to actually raise our series A and, and kind of scale faster from there. And that's probably at that point, it's just like a spreadsheet thing. Here's all the data. We're not buying into some vision or story and like, well, people use it as just like, hey, here's all the numbers. They're here. For us, it was all story and mission and like partnership driven. Like I was so at that point, I think I was a little jaded by my overall early VC experience that, you know, I was like really skeptical about raising more money. So we we ended up almost not taking a lot of conversations and, and it really only clicked when we found a partner. This is Excel and Arun at Excel specifically that like it was all mission first it was, like convinced us that it's like a true partnership it's not about like you know how big this business can get yeah that became a factor uh you know down down the line but it was so much about like we want to see this mission succeed. and we actually created i don't talk about this a ton but we created uh with arun you, you know that video i mentioned in, inventing on principle that inspired webflow 
we had created a social contract called investing on principle that, that we signed before the term sheet that was all around like, how do we create a long-term partnership? Like this is about, like this partnership is about making sure Webflow's mission succeeds over the next many decades. It's not just like a growth at all costs and like shareholder value at all costs type of partnership. And that was like, it that set precedent for like yeah, the kind of investors that, that we added where um, like that social contract drives everything, right? And it's uh, the partners that we added since then have started with like, you know, sometimes the first conversation, like, hey, this is the kind of, uh, you know, partnership that, that we are looking for. And oftentimes it like, you would never hear from a VC again once they saw, saw that. <laughs> oh, no. But when for the partners that really like it resonated with, it was yeah. like the foundation of um, a really very strong and long lasting uh, partnership. So something I'm really proud of. So what would, what advice would you give to other founders that want to try to accomplish something similar, whether this is just run it, break even, or not raise venture dollars for a long time? I know I'm probably hurting myself here as a VC. And then also finding the right kind of partners that you really want to align with long-term for decades. I think the, by the way, one of my favorite books I've ever read is um, a book called The Infinite Game by Simon Sinek. The TLDR of the infinite game, typically like the commonly um, kind of expressed social responsibility of a business is to return value to shareholders or like maximize value for shareholders. That's like the Friedman doctrine. Uh, the infinite game kind of flips that and says like the primary social responsibility of a business is to advance a just cause or a mission that brings 10 times more value to the world than it does to you as a company. Oftentimes, startups are that you're creating something that's much more valuable to others than it is to you. For every $10 we make, people are sometimes making hundreds, if not thousands of dollars in like service revenue, et cetera. The second responsibility is to prioritize people in your business decisions. That doesn't just mean like the whole work for you uh, or with you, um, but also like the impact your business has on the environment, on communities, on, you know, uh, human beings that like use your product, et cetera. And so the third responsibility in the background is to generate revenue specifically to do the first two things for as long as possible. It's like a, a loop that's therefore the infinite game, like it's a loop that can sustain itself. And I think of like venture capital as part of number three, right? Generating revenue or finding uh, partners that help you do the first two things for as long as possible. And like the framing of how I've found is really helpful to evaluate whether the, the partners that you work with help you do that. Like are these uh, are these people who are aligned on like the mission of the company, what you want to achieve together? And if so, that provides fuel for you to be able to do that together. And if those things are true, then absolutely, it's a great tool to go further with taking that just cause and bringing it to more people in the world. Often like early, and sometimes you don't have a choice. Like when we were raising our initial round, it's like, get all the money what you get, right? We weren't having like deeply philosophical, like what is the partner thing? Or what is this going to look like five years from now? Or what are your what are motivations or who are your LPs? And are they going to provide like undue pressure, et cetera? But th that's how I think about it now. It is a uh, oftentimes lifelong as the life of the company type of partnerships until at least you go public that it's really, really important to find the right partners. Like on a human level, on a like human partnership level, you want to know that those people like have your back, want what's best for you and best for the company and, and can provide like, it's like a true friendship, right? Like a true friend is going to give you like even the hard truths. That's what makes a better friend than just like a, an acquaintance. You know, if you can find that in a partner, like, like one plus one equals 10, right? You can do so much more together with the change you're trying to drive in the world. But then I would also say, even after you raise capital, 
I'm personally of the opinion that you should always operate in a default alive type state where you always assume you're not going to raise additional capital. You always plan for um, a world where you have to like operate independently as a business. And that gives you so much more optionality, so much more, not only safety, but sometimes like courage to take bigger bets because you know that it's not like a risk everything type of move. Right. If you if you run out of cash, because you'll you'll survive anyways, because you're not draining the bank account with these risks. Exactly. You know, th- sometimes that means like you, you don't take as like wild risks as you might when you take like a big, big swing. And if it succeeds, it's like 100x sort of return. But to me, that's just like a most impactful, long lasting businesses that have a lot of, uh, you know, bring a lot of value to the world. Don't get built overnight. Right. And, and require a lot of thoughtful growing and building over time. Anything that like really disrupts that or like creates unnatural pressure dynamics to like really risk the longevity of that business is a um, existential risk. So you have to be careful with the partners you bring on board. I know we're running short on time, so we'll do quick rapid fire. Do you have a favorite CEO, founder, or business that you have always really looked up to for inspiration or learned a lot from? I think two, the founders of Atlassian and Wade from Zapier. If you, I don't know if you haven't had Wade on yet. He's amazing. I've never had him on. Would you recommend him? Yeah, absolutely. Wade is awesome. They've always been ahead of us on every dimension by a few years. Uh, So it's always something that I'm uh, constantly learning from. I'll have to ask you for an introduction to him after this, see if he's down. And then favorite interview question when hiring? It shifts and changes, but I would say like my, my most common one that I've gotten the most insights from the most people, especially leaders, is uh, asking what gives you a deep sense of impact and fulfillment in your professional work. And that that really opens up. You get to you get to hear like what people are like really driven by. You don't go into, you know, hear like situations that I've been part of and, and what I did. You, you always cover that in like other parts of the interviews. But like that question around like impact and fulfillment, like where they get fulfillment in their like professional work opens up so many different conversations where you get to see really what this person uh, cares about. You know, and you get to know people like on a much deeper level from that question. Yeah, you get you probably almost disarm them a little bit. Like that's not a common interview question and kind of get underneath. Awesome. Well, this has been great. Thanks for coming on. I loved every minute of it. Thank you so much for having me, Turner. And thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, send this episode to a friend who might like it. If you don't want to miss future episodes, subscribe to the newsletter, The Split, in the show notes and get new ones in your inbox the moment they drop. Thanks again to Vlad for coming on. Make sure to check out Webflow if you want to design a website without code and Mercury if you want a better banking partner. I hope you learned something new. See you next time.